Now, Raymond Arroyo. A warm welcome to all of you joining us in the United States and the world over. What a show we have for you tonight. If you'd like to comment, send me a tweet. I'm at Raymond Arroyo. Lots to cover this evening. Let's get started. My next guest is an Emmy Award-nominated actress and producer. She starred as Monica, of course, in the incredibly popular smash hit, Touched by an Angel. Along with her husband, Mark Burnett, she's responsible for inspirational fare, like the hit miniseries The Bible, films like Son of God and Little Boy. She's also the author of a brand-new book, Unexpected Blessings, 90 Inspirations to Nourish Your Soul and Open Your Heart. Here to tell us about it and the power of gratitude, please welcome back to the program our pal Roma Downey. Hi, Roma. Uh, delighted to see you. Each daily devotion in this book starts with a quote, a piece of scripture, and a personal story. Why did you choose that format? And where did the inspiration for this book originate? Well, the inspiration for the book, Raymond, really came from my last book, which was called Box of Butterflies, which was a spiritual yeah. memoir I wrote a couple of years ago. And the subtitle of that book was Discovering the Unexpected Blessings All Around Us. And nice. for this new book, I decided to take a deeper dive into those unexpected blessings. And I find that the more I was able to uncover them and identify them and be grateful for them, the more there seemed to be. And I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking mm -hmm. about really taking time to be quiet and still, maybe to go outside and experience nature, to spend more time with family mm -hmm. and friends. You know, I think all of us were forced over the last few years to slow down because of COVID right. and the uncertainty and the confusion that it brought up for many people, particularly at the beginning. And, um, yeah. and yet within that, you know, for those of us that were fortunate enough not to get terribly sick with COVID, we found ourselves just with a little bit more time on our hands. And, mm -hmm. um, and to be honest, I just, found that to be an incredible blessing. I seem to mm -hmm. run at a million miles an hour, working so hard. And, um, and I was so appreciative of just being able to take some time in nature, take some time to, mm. to pray, take the time to listen to God, you know, to be still and know that he is God, one of my favorite Psalms. Yeah. And, and I chose to write this in a way that was manageable, you know, that it's that is sort of like bite-sized for people. Right. That they could join me in the morning, wouldn't take that long, five or 10 minutes, and we could read through this together and end in a prayer together. And it just kind of sets yourself up for success in the day. Yeah. Roma, talk to me about that. You mentioned it there, how the, the pandemic really uh, affected your life and all of our lives. Talk to me about the strength of stillness. It's a theme you sound in the book, but I know it's a big theme also in your life, Lightworkers Vertical, um, stillness, quiet, and that we don't practice it enough. Yes. Well, we, we certainly live in a very noisy world, Raymond, you know, and I know, filled with yeah. distractions. You know, if it's the TV mm -hmm. or it's a laptop or it's your phone or you're on social media, oh, you've <laughs> got an Instagram, you want to send out a tweet, you know, it's on and on and on. And, yeah. um, and I think that one of the blessings for me and for my family that came out of this last few years was just turning everything off for a little bit and, mm. uh, and really experiencing the joy that comes from being quiet. Um, you know, we think 
we'd love to hear God, you know, but we sometimes we're just too noisy to hear him. Yeah. You know, it was a gift. It was a gift for it us. It was like an extended there, retreat, really. Ray, Raymond, there's a poem that I quote in the book, a Mary mm -hmm. Oliver poem, and I really love her work. But she says something like, someone once gave me a box of darkness and it's taken mm. me till now to realize that this too was a gift. And I mm. think maybe it's just the older I get. You know, I've, 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 I've had a lot of experience with loss and grief. A lot of people that I loved, unfortunately, have died. And not mm. that I wouldn't give anything to have them back again, but I'm really beginning to understand that even in the loss, there's a blessing, you know, that even yeah. in the pain, when pain can be turned into purpose, you know, one of our goals mm -hmm. at Lightworkers, we are the faith and family division of MGM Studios. And mm -hmm. one of our goals is always to create content and tell stories that uplift and inspire and remind people that they're not alone, remind people that yeah. we belong to each other. And so I've tried to address some of these themes in this book as well. Yeah, no, I, I love, uh, you know, you write about the loss of your mother, uh, which we've talked about before, and the unexpected blessing, I mean, you lost her at a young age, but the unexpected blessing that can be found in those dark moments, and you write, and I want to put this up on the screen, wherever you're at, I urge you to fix your eyes not on your circumstances, but on Jesus. At some point, all of us face the dark cocoon of pain. We may long to escape, but we must also remember that our struggle in the hands of God has purpose. In this way, pain becomes an unexpected blessing. It makes us strong enough to fly. Um, I, I, I want to talk about the images we're seeing today of those Ukrainians suffering during this horrible invasion of their country. It's gut-wrenching gut to watch it, uh, emotionally draining at times. And we've been covering this story and praying about it on our show. In your book, you offer advice to how to cope with that frightening news of the world. What is your advice to people, Roma? What should they be doing in the midst of all these troubles? Well, you know, I'm a big believer in prayer, Raymond. I've never made a decision in my life, my personal life or my business life, a decision big or small that I didn't pray about first. And um, mm -hmm. I think it really, it really helps give you clarity and it really helps gives you peace you know, the peace that passes all understanding. So I think that's a very important um, part of this. Um, mm. I have loved the butterfly image for so long. It's such a strong metaphor, isn't it, for, um, mm -hmm. for change, for breakthrough, and remembering mm -hmm. that it's the very struggle for that butterfly coming out of the cocoon. If we were just to slip that little cocoon, rip it open and help that butterfly out, it would not be able to fly. The wings would be soggy because it is the struggle. It's the forcing mm. of the fluid through the wings that gives the butterfly the strength that it needs to fly. And so too with us, you know, as we go mm. through a variety of struggles in our life. I mean, my mother died at 10. Nothing could have prepared mm. me for her death. It was as if no. the light was turned out. And yet, 15 years later, when I was offered the role of Monica the Angel on Touched by an Angel, the very qualities that I needed were those that I had learned through that struggle, empathy, compassion, kindness, mm. understanding. These were the qualities that Monica needed, and it was almost as if God had prepared me for that by the life that I was living. So 
Mm. Um, we don't always see it when we're in it. You know, my heart yeah. breaks too for the people in this war. I myself grew up in a in a war, and I know how scary yeah. that can be. I grew up in Northern Ireland, mm. and you know, we hid behind cars when gun battles blew blew out, and mm. we ran from buildings that exploded. And it's it's terrifying, you know. And you just mm. got to hold the people you love close, and keep your eyes on God. Yeah. I want to talk about your beloved co-star, your friend, Della Reese uh, from Touched by an Angel, who was really like a mother to you. And you write about, uh, and, and it's one of the things I love about this book, it, 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 of course, embraces the universal, what we all go through, but you make it very personal through your own life, and you, you tell intimate stories. And you write here about that first encounter with Della in, a, in the makeup trailer during the pilot of the show. And you said, I was awed and slightly intimidated at first, so I approached her quietly, politely, reaching out my hand and saying, I just wanted to introduce myself. Oh, baby, I don't show, shake hands. I hug, Della smiled. And she wrapped <laughs> me in the biggest, most loving embrace I'd ever experienced. I immediately felt comfortable and at ease, and in some ways, Della and I were an unlikely duo, a brassy and bold black singer from downtown Detroit and a small, soft-spoken white woman from Ireland. Yet our strong faith formed a deeper bond than any difference could separate us. We loved and strengthened one another for decades, not merely on air, but in everyday life as well. How important was Della in your life, and what did she teach you about gratitude, Roma? Della was uh, really important in my life. You know, I'm sure since my mom died, I had been looking for a mother figure, and I certainly found her in Della Reese. Um, she was like no one else in this world. And, um, you know, and it's true. She, you know, I, I, I laugh remembering my, my attempt at politely shaking hands, and she just wrapped me in a bear hug, you know, and <laughs> man, could she hug. It was great. While we were working together, Raymond, unfortunately, Della's only daughter died unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. and, and she came to me and she said, you know, baby, I always knew that God brought me into your life because you needed a mother. She said, mm -hmm. but I didn't realize that he was bringing you into my life because I was going to need a daughter. She said, will mm. you be my baby girl? I said, yeah. And she said, then I am your mom. And she was my mom. And you write in the book about how that taught you about the power of presence when she lost her daughter, that at times our presence is all that's needed. And God yeah. puts us in those places when we're most needed. Right. What do you hope readers well, take away from the I didn't even know what book? I was going to say to her. You know, it's like there are no words, right? I mean, if you consider mm. in the English language, there isn't even a word to, des to describe a parent that's lost a child. A child that's yeah. lost a parent, we can call orphan. We have widow, mm -hmm. widower, but we don't have a word to describe a parent who's lost a child. I guess maybe just that mm. word is heartbroken. But she, yeah. Um, yeah, she did. She taught. She taught all of us so much. You know, she was constantly. Her life was a lesson, and she was very generous mm. in sharing that with all of us. So, no question, many, many times she was the unexpected blessing in my life, yeah. and I'm sure I speak for many when I say that. Roma, what do you hope readers take away from this new book and the intimacy of it? As I share these intimate and very personal stories of my own life and the lessons that I have learned from them, hoping perhaps that the reader, you know, will resonate with some of those or will be reminded of something 
from their own life. Um, and in a way, just to, to start to see that the blessings are everywhere, you know? And in my experience, the more you're grateful for the little things, the more little things show up to be grateful for. Yeah. And I'm convinced that when the heart opens, the Holy Spirit is able to get in. And, you know, once the Holy Spirit gets in, then God does the rest. I feel like my job is just it does to, indeed. to crack it the does heart indeed. open. Ramadani, happy Easter. Thank you for the gift of this book, and we'll talk again soon. Uh, the book is Unexpected Blessings, 90 Inspirations to Nourish Your Soul and Open Your Heart by Ramadani. Yeah. It's available at bookstores everywhere and online. Blessings to you, my friend. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Raymond. And I'd just like to add briefly that it will make a beautiful yes. Mother's Day gift for anyone out there that's looking for a gift for their mom. Absolutely. And anyone in your life. Thank you, Roma. Talk soon. Thanks, Raymond. Bye. Pope Francis continues to speak out on Russia's invasion of Ukraine with some very pointed comments directed at Orthodox Patriarch Kirill. The USCCB is shuttering its news operation, and some U.S. bishops continue to repudiate the German synodal way. Joining me now with analysis of these stories and many more, a member of the Papal Posse, priest of the Archdiocese of New York, and the author of the very prescient new book, Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crisis Facing the Catholic Church and Society, Father Gerald Murray joins the program. Father, thanks for being here. Uh, before we get to the, the book, uh, Calming the Storm, Pope Francis had some strong words for Moscow Patriarch Kirill this week. In a recent interview, Francis said he urged Kirill in their March Zoom meeting not to become, quote, Putin's altar boy. Francis also made comments about NATO's expansion, uh, claiming that perhaps this, quote, barking at NATO or the barking of NATO at Russia's door had facilitated the invasion or led to it. A meeting between Putin and the Pope has been offered, but so far, no response from Moscow. What do you make of Francis's comments? Let's start with his calling Patriarch Kirill out as he did. Well, I'm glad he did, but, you know, uh, it's, it's not a question of becoming his altar boy. Uh, Kirill has been a complete supporter of this invasion, of this immoral, uh, horrible war that's being waged. Uh, he the other he also said uh, recently that uh, Russians don't Russians don't invade other countries. Uh, that's a, a line that Lavrov, the foreign minister, said you know a day or two after the invasion happened. No, uh, the patriarch has been justifying this aggression. Uh, he has not condemned Putin for doing something immoral. And you know where is the outrage from Kirill about the uh, murders and the war crimes and the destruction of civilian homes? the targeting of people, the murders, and all the rest. So uh, the pope is right to criticize Kirill, but I think we have to realize that Kirill is basically an apparatchik, meaning he's a functionary mm. of uh, Putin's government. And that really is the reason why he's not pre preaching the Christian message forthrightly. What do you make of the pope's dalliance into uh, foreign policy analysis here, saying that it was NATO barking at, at uh, Ukraine that caused Russia to go ahead and jump into this well, invasion. The, the, uh, this is, I would say, with all due respect, naive. Uh, are the people of Poland responsible for uh, Putin's inviting, uh, invading Ukraine because Poland joined NATO a number of years ago? The idea that sovereign nations cannot determine their own foreign policy 
because their former communist master won't be happy. Uh, that's not a part of uh, any analysis of democracy and freedom in the post-World War II era. Uh, no, NATO's not responsible for the Russians going into Ukraine. Putin's responsible. And then the generals and everyone else carrying out these war crimes, they're the ones responsible. Mm. I also uh, want to mention uh, Pope Francis was seen using a wheelchair for the first time in public this week. It's reported that knee pain is making it difficult for him to walk. Father, the Pope is 85 years old. He's canceled or reduced scheduled activities often in the past month due to this pain, uh, so the Vatican says. Your thoughts on what we're seeing? And, of course, we wish the Holy Father the best and hope his health recovers. Yes. No, I was glad to see that he was in the wheelchair only because I, I, don't want to, I don't want to be in a wheelchair myself when I get that age. But if, you know, if your knee pain is such that you can't walk right, and when I watched the Pope in Malta, I was troubled to see how hard it was for him to walk and to get around. So it's good for him to rest that knee. The doctors obviously prevailed upon him. Uh, so I hope that he'll be able to calmly and with patience, because we know he's a man that likes to walk around and, and you know, see people and all the rest. So uh, sometimes you just have to accept medical realities and, uh, you know, give a spiritual uh, uh, significance to it by saying, I'll, I'll offer up uh, this wheelchair experience as part of my cross. Mm. I spoke to somebody at the Vatican today, in fact, two sources, uh, who say it may not only be the knee pain, that this could be lingering effects of that uh, very intense surgery. He had the colon surgery earlier this year, or late last year, rather. Interesting. Well, you know, the Pope obviously uh, went through a, a very significant surgery back in uh, last year, and um, the Vatican has not really given updates on that so much. So who knows? But, yeah. you know, I, my heart goes out to the Pope because I hate to see physical suffering, and particularly someone who yeah. has such an uh, you know, important role in the world and in the Church. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Father Jerry, the German synodal path continues to be controversial. Uh, as you recall, there was an April 11th open letter signed by over 70 U.S. bishops critical of what's happening in the church in Germany. Uh, this week, one of the signatories, Bishop Sam Aquila, wrote in his own letter to the head of the German Bishops' Conference, and in it he said, the synodal path does not simply address structural concerns. It challenges and, in some cases, repudiates the deposit of faith. Documents of the synodal path cannot be read in any other way than as raising the most serious questions about the nature and binding authority of divine revelation, the nature and efficacy of the sacraments, and the truth of Catholic teaching on human love and sexuality. Uh, and just to kind of bring people up to date, th this synodal path is sort of a coming together, a listening session that is a dress rehearsal for what we're about to see on the world stage in Rome next year. Father, your thoughts on Aquila's criticisms, and uh, we should add that Bishop Aquila has been uh, engaged in an ongoing back and forth with the German bishops. You touch on some of this in your book, Calming the Storm. Yes, no, the Bishop of Denver is an heroic figure because he's speaking out about a matter of grave importance. And he's doing so uh, in a way that is getting the attention of the Germans. The German Bishops' Conference, along with the Committee of German Laity, have produced a revolutionary program called the Synodal Way Propositions, which include ordaining uh, women to the priesthood and the episcopate. It includes the blessing of homosexual unions, the approval of homosexual activity, 
Uh, it is a revolutionary document. They want bishops of dioceses to be elected and to be able to be recalled by the uh, people of the diocese. No, it, it is essentially a Protestantization of the Catholic Church by recentering authority away from the hierarchs, meaning the bishops, and putting it in the mm -hmm. hands of essentially a self-selected committee of lay people. It's terrible. And I, the, the Bishop of Denver deserves all praise. In calming the storm, uh, you, you suggest there that it's one thing for dissent to come from the pews, but when it comes from the hierarchy, it, it truly is a dangerous situation. What effect do you think this is all having on the universal church? Well, uh, this is leading to extreme strife in the life of the church, great fears of what's going to happen as the synodal way is influencing the synod on synodality, which is this two-year process that Pope Francis began. We're well into that now, the consultative phase in diocese, and people have been meeting. We had meetings here in the Archdiocese of New York. Uh, so the great fear is that those people who think the German bishops are not heretics but prophets, are they going to take their uh, really heretical propositions and then put them forward as somehow the will of the Catholic people uh, and the kind of mm. cutting-edge direction we have to go in? Uh, Raymond, we're seeing a revolution in slow motion, and it is going to cause what all revolutions cause, which is strife upsetness and on the hand of the revolutionaries basically lying and fraud because they're going to claim, oh, there's nothing revolutionary here. We're simply getting back to original Christianity. Uh, no, they aren't. They're trying to revolutionize the church in the view of mm. basically 20th century Marxist and liberal ideas. Uh, and where does Jesus fit into that? Uh, they don't ever say. Uh, the idea that what Jesus did at the Last Supper was inadequate, that we have to supplement it by calling in the women apostles, Jesus never did that. The German bishops want him to want to do that themselves. Hmm. Well, uh, the, the further troubling point here is many of those who are running this synod on synodality next year, they're the ones furthering and, and giving voice to these, you know, very uh, radical ideas that really have no uh, track or precedent in the Catholic Church. They're just—they're uh, they're pulling it out of whole cloth and seeking to impose it on the Senate. So we'll see what happens. But, Father, here in the U.S., the USCCB, the Bishops' Conference, abruptly announced this week it would shutter the D.C. and New York bureaus of the Catholic News Service by year's end. This is a hundred-year-old institution. Uh, this is part of their reorganization of the Communications Department. Its Rome Bureau will continue to operate, but all in all, 21 employees will be laid off. Now, the conference claims this is cost-cutting, and I imagine it's being forced in this position because you have hundreds of millions of dollars in abuse settlements paid out in recent years. The, the question is, who is the audience for this material? I mean, is that also what's driving this um, consolidation and shuddering? Yeah, well, I think the, uh, you know, in the past, the Bishop's News Service was basically the unique source of news about life in the Catholic Church for diocesan newspapers. Uh, and then mm. also, if any of those uh, news service stories we've picked up in the secular media. Now the competition's all out there, you know, between EWTN and all the various other Catholic networks, websites, podcasts, uh, you know, people doing news out of their own basement that has widespread uh, uh, influence. So the competition got strong. And um, what I most regret, though, about this closure is that they didn't announce at the same time that they're going to have a low-cost digital strategy, uh, which is very possible now in the media environment that we have. 
I hope they do resurrect something because, you know, diocesan newspapers and the like do need a story and analysis, and uh, it would be a shame mm -hmm. if that was simply not no longer available. Yeah, well, they're, they're also shutting down their, their publishing operation, which, you know, is, is another odd thing. But I guess they'll just contract out when it's a papal encyclical. I guess they'll just contract it out to a secular publisher and, you know, and, and move it that way. Uh, they do an awful lot of rewriting. And we have to say this about CNS. Um, uh, they, they do an awful lot of rewriting of press releases. And like these diocesan papers, the church has a tendency to sort of look for life among the tombs of dead or defunct media. They do that. And I think they extend a lot of these periodicals and, and organizations just because they've been around a long time. But if there's no audience, you can't sustain them. And uh, th that that's what I think ultimately did, did them in here. It's a financial proposition. The bishops couldn't keep floating it. Father, uh, also in the U.S., Father James Martin, along with America Magazine and America Media, all part of the Jesuit media apparatus, has announced the launch of a new website this week uh, for outreach to Catholic LGBT people. It's called Outreach, according to Father Martin, one of the universal apostolic preferences of the Jesuits now is walking with the excluded. Jesus went to the margins. That's where this community is right now in the church. They're the most marginalized group in the church, bar none. Um, again, this is a theme you touch on in Calming the Storm. Your thoughts on this initiative, and what do you make of the timing given the ongoing synodal path underway in Germany? Okay, so a couple of things, you know, claiming victim status as a uh, way to gain influence is now being embraced by Father Martin. The most excluded group in the church is the people that are now launch, helping him to launch this, you know, who knows how many dollars worth a website, which is going to become an influence center for agitation to support the legal, uh, the legitimization of homosexual activity. Uh, you know, Father Martin never talks about courage and the courage members. He's marginalized them completely when he talks about the church and homosexuality and pastoral outreach. Now, you know, Father Martin, in his book, Building a Bridge, accuses the Catechism of the Catholic Church of cruelty uh, in its statements about homosexuality and homosexual attraction. Uh, now we've got Cardinal Marx and Hollerich over in Europe saying that the Catholic Church's teaching is wrong on homosexuality, the catechism has to be changed. So what's going on here, I think, is what we talked about in a previous show. There's a vast uh, influence peddling a group that wants to make the Synod on Synodality into the Synod on Homosexuality, and they want to announce that a church that listens to the people has to basically go, go along with what they say the people want. And I can tell you right now, most Catholics do not believe that God made a mistake uh, when he gave the Ten Commandments, when he created male and female, when he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, that's what sex is for. It's not for homosexual activity, uh, but this is unfortunately what Father Martin is promoting and, uh, you know, most regrettable. Mm. I, I want to get into the new book, Calming the Storm, Navigating the Crises in the Catholic Church and Society. It's out in bookstores now. Uh, you couldn't have picked a more tumultuous moment, Father, in which to release it, so good timing. Uh, it is a book-length interview you gave to Catholic journalist Diane Montagna, um, your collaborator on the project. Why did you decide to do this kind of book now, and why was an interview the best format for it? Well, interview books are easier to read, and that's one of the uh, things that was in mind. And also, interview books are easier to write. 
So I'm a full-time <laughs> pastor here in New York City. Uh, when I, when you know, I love coming on your show and and doing other media type things. And Bob Royal, uh, I collaborate with his website, The Catholic Thing. But I'm mostly doing you know pastoral work in the diocese. So Scott Hahn mm -hmm. asked us, uh, Diane and I, if we do a book, and he said do an interview book. You know, Cardinal Sarah has done three interview books, which very influential. Cardinal Burke has done one, uh, Cardinal Muller, and of course we go back to the Ratzinger Report, you know, in the early mm -hmm. 1980s. Interview books have a big impact uh, because colloquial style is more accessible. Uh, and then you also, you're not, you, you can bounce from topic to topic and no one says, well, I've lost a train of thought. No, it's like a conversation. <laughs> we'll talk about this and we'll talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Father, you, you've divided the book into seven chapters, including one on your life and vocation, the others covering all sorts of hot-button issues, the indissolubility of marriage, homosexuality and gender ideology, the abuse crisis, the responsibility of the bishops, and the duty of Catholics in the pew. I mean, it, it's sort of like a real-world catechism with contemporary examples of how the Church teaching can be applied. How did you choose the areas of discussion, or did Diana sort of lay that out? Well, Diane is sort of the mastermind behind the format of the book, and it's based, it's called Calming the Storm because it's based on the incident where our Lord was asleep in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and the storm arose, mm -hmm. and the apostles woke him up, and then he calmed the storm. So that's the same idea is that the church right now is like the boat, and we're going through storms, and we have to call on the Lord to calm those storms, but then the Lord calls upon us to have faith and not to worry, you know. The Lord is not sleeping right now. He's very aware of what's going on. Uh, so we turn to him for help. Uh, but the topics, you know, I quite frankly, this book is a continuation of what I've been doing with you and Bob Royal now since 2013, which is to bring mm -hmm. the, the faith and analysis uh, to contemporary uh, challenges. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. I, I know from the reaction I get to people on appearing on TV, they like it when a priest tells them what the church teaches because they hear other people contradicting what they learned as kids, and they say, did the church change your teaching? And the answer is, pay no attention to shepherds who are leading you into bad fields. Pay attention mm. to what the church has always taught. Yeah. You, you titled the second chapter, Age of Confusion. In it, you write, the essential problem we face in the Western world is the loss of reality. We've entered into a nihilistic view of the world in which nothing is what it is, where there is no such thing as what something is. According to this view, something only becomes what it is when we determine it. It's called the plasticity of reality. Everything is subject to man's reshaping or designating of value. The plasticity of reality, this reality is the basis of everything you discuss in the book, right? And, and how did we get here? as a church and as a society? Well, essentially, this uh, I trace it back to the Reformation and the Enlightenment. So it was uh, religious and social and philosophical ways of thinking that rejected the authority of natural law, of revelation, and then casting doubt even on human reason. You know, reasonable people wake up and understand you know, uh, the desk in my room is a desk. It didn't become a desk when I decided it was a desk. It was a desk, and that's why I bought it. In other words, reality has its own existence and categories, and the key to happiness mm. in life is to discover what reality is and then make good use of it according to its nature. Nowadays, mm. with gender ideology, for instance, 
you know, people are claiming, well, you, you maybe you're when you're born, you're designated as a boy or girl, but you're not really a boy or girl. You get to pick it. Uh, this is insanity. This is against reality. It's the usual problem that happens when people, you know, decide that they're in charge. No, God is in charge. God made the world. God sustains it. And if we don't find God's nature and purpose in reality, uh, we're going to be, you know, what is Walter uh, or one of the writers said, you know, lost in the cosmos. Uh, that's not yeah. what we are. We know where we are and what we're supposed to do. Yeah. In the third chapter, Crooks and Hirelings, uh, you discuss the problem of bishops and priests who teach false doctrine and dissent. Now, this is one of the most difficult things for the faithful, I think, to understand. You write, the warning of our Lord, the Good Shepherd, of the presence of thieves and hirelings who prey upon the flock or who flee when wolves appear should not unduly sadden or cause us to lose our peace. Rather, we take courage knowing that the Good Lord is always with us. Uh, Father, what is the laity's role here in this moment? And what of those who say you're being disloyal when you critique those in authority at the moment? They want you to just shut up and pray. Okay, yeah, so first about the laity. You know, the role of the laity is the same role of the clergy and everybody in the church. There's a fundamental equality of all the baptized. And our duty is to love and serve God, to become informed about our faith, uh, to pray, to make sacrifices. And when challenges come up, to resist uh, the temptation to cast aside Catholic doctrine in favor of a worldly point of view. Now, is it disloyal to critique shepherds who are leading the sheep astray? Absolutely not. You know, our highest loyalty in the Catholic Church is to God and to his truth. And the truth is a public uh, revelation. We know what the truth is. So, for instance, when Cardinal Marx says that the Catholic Church teaching on homosexuality needs to be changed, as Catholics, we're not obliged to say, oh, you're in charge here. I guess I better go along with you. No, what we say is, wait a minute, you're in charge in Munich and you're contradicting Jesus Christ. You have to stop. Uh, so, you know, to appeal then to Pope Francis to say, please uh, get Cardinal Marx to change his opinion or fire him. There's nothing disloyal about doing that. And that's really what should be happening. And, you know, we hope and pray that the pope uh, would become as concerned uh, on this issue as he is on some others. Uh, because, quite frankly, we can't just say, well, this is an amusing sideshow in Germany where people kind of letting, you know, airing out their grievances. No, this is a revolution to change Catholicism and make it look like liberal Protestantism. We have to resist that. Hmm. What do you want readers and viewers and uh, fans of the papal posse to take away from calming the storm? What's the overall message here in your mind? Well, I think it's the message that, you know, you give in the show and that, uh, you know, we try to do, Bob and I, when we discuss it. Uh, we're here as servants of the Lord to make known his truth. And in doing so, we have to radiate the peace of Christ. So getting upset about error and evil, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. But we should never turn to bitterness and name-calling and, you know, hatred, uh, casting aspersions and all that kind of thing. Vituperation, you know, we're not into that. What we have to do uh, as priests and people in the church is be faithful to Christ, know our religion, and then put into practice. And by the way, you know, when Cardinal Marx is teaching error to the faithful, uh, that doesn't mean that the faithful can't learn the truth from someone else. So we ignore shepherds who are doing evil and wrong, and we say, Lord, guide me in faith in the right path. That's one of the brilliant things of Mother Angelica. She made available to Catholics all over the world access to true Catholic teaching. 
Yeah, and she was beaten up by a couple of shepherds along the way, too. She gave as good as she got, though. Don't worry. Father, we will leave it there. Calming the storm, navigating the crisis, facing the Catholic Church and society by Father Gerald Murray is available now at the St. Paul Center. They're at stpaulcenter.com and EWTN's religious catalog at EWTNRC.com. Father Jerry, thank you for being here. Thank you, Raymond. Is there a crisis of masculinity in today's culture? My next guest believes so. In his new book, No Apologies, Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men, he draws on timeless wisdom to defend the traditionally masculine virtues. Please welcome professor in residence at Magdalen College in Warner, New Hampshire, Anthony Esselin. Thank you so much for being here, Anthony. We, we hear the term toxic masculinity tossed around a lot today. What's wrong with masculinity as we know it today, or the perception of it at least? Well, uh, all we'd have to do is to change that word masculinity to manliness, and immediately we see a contradiction, uh, an absurdity in the mm. phrase toxic manliness. Surely not, right? Um, uh, the, the problem is that um, with the uh, you know mass entertainment the way it is giving giving boys especially no decent models uh, of manliness and so many boys growing up without fathers in the home at all um, and in school not being uh, fed with the the great epic tales of, of true manhood um, what you get is uh, either a, a deficiency of masculinity or a caricature of it, a cartoon, a parody. Mm. Um, and uh, it, so we end up with a, a, a terrible phrase to be throwing at boys all the time, toxic man masculinity, when what we really ought to be doing is to be training these young boys in manliness, um, which is a very great and necessary virtue. Why did you decide to write this book now? Was it something that you were perceiving in the culture or in the classroom? Well, uh, perhaps not in our my classroom at uh, uh, Magdalen College, but um, yeah, I had seen it for many years in, in the college classroom uh, at Providence College. Um, not always, not in all students, but a certain a certain lassitude among the young men. Not I'm not mean. I don't mean laziness exactly. I mean uh, a kind of wistful hopelessness. Um, a mm. sense that they were not really needed, uh, and um, uh, that that many of the things that they by nature preferred to do were somehow suspect. And um, mm -hmm. I came along, and for many years, I I I would tell them, no, that's not true. You're being fed a lie. Um, but you, but instead of uh, 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 swinging into a parody of masculinity, which is machismo. Um, let's right. take a look at what let's take a look at what societies all across the world have valued in men. Yeah, the the ref you reference in the book Homer's Odyssey uh, about Odysseus and his journey home from the Trojan War. What can Odysseus's character and journey teach us about true masculinity or manly? One of the things, yeah, uh, that's a great question. One of the things. There's, there's a lot to learn about Odysseus. He's he's uh, a, a true man. He's not perfect. He's not a saint, uh, not by a long stretch. However, um, 
uh, he's to be distinguished on the one hand from uh, the suitors who are making themselves obnoxious in the absence of the father of the city. That is to say, uh, Odysseus as king of Ithaca has the role of a father. With the father absent, we don't get feminism. What we get are young men out of control. Uh, so you have 108 mm. suitors eating up house and home in Odysseus' estate in Ithaca. Um, their own fathers in the city either unable to control them or unwilling. The poem ends with the reestablishment of the family, the household, and the city of right. Ithaca. In your book, you write about the difficulty men have today navigating American society. This is a quote in which place does a man now feel most comfortable speaking his mind, a university, classroom, or a bar? At work, even in his work, if his work is dedicated to seeking the truth or at a lunch counter with a group of guys from the construction site, you can have a place where no one or no one in a certain privileged group will have his feelings hurt, or you can have a chance at a real school or university, but you cannot have both at once. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, uh, I mean, there it is. It, it, what a scandal it is that you would, in fact, have more liberty to think, to question, to ask, to investigate, to give an opinion, to argue, and not mm. feel in your argument that you were taking your livelihood at risk, right? Uh, putting your livelihood at risk, that the, you would be more comfortable in at a bar doing those things than at a university. Mm. That, I mean, that is a, that is a great uh, a condemnation of the university. And that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, my own mm. students uh, at Providence College, my own students by no means uh, felt always free to speak an unpopular opinion in, in a class. I mean, this was especially true of women's studies classes, but it was true in many other classes as well. And mm. at, even at that, Providence College was a lot healthier than most other places. And so, so the mm. whole... The, the whole university then comes to a, a quick and grinding halt. And there's nothing to replace it. The, 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 the church has suffered from the decline of true masculinity as well. You explain in the book, Roman Catholics have abundant experience of what happened when girls were permitted to serve at the altar. The boys disappeared. Why? No doubt for a variety of coinciding reasons most of which the boys themselves would have been hard put to describe. The camaraderie was, was spoiled. The older boys, instead of being rather like the first mate or the master at arms aboard a ship, instructing the smaller boys in what to do and how to do it, would now stick out and look absurd. Now, Anthony, the debate of, over uh, female altar servers, that really goes back a long way. What other ways has the church suffered from a lack of authentic manliness? Boy, uh, I mean, think about the think about the scandal of abuse in the church, overwhelmingly per perpetrated by men who, I'm not solely perpetrated, but preponderantly by men who never grew up sexually, um, who never grew into a healthy manhood, uh, and, and who saw it um, in uh, unnatural and. Um, well, I kind of arrested development, uh, sexual encounters with young men, with, with boys, as if they were stuck 
in a vicious pre-adolescence or adolescence themselves. The loss of the sense of the transcendent in liturgy. Mm. And I sometimes, I sometimes try to ask people to think about uh, a secular ritual that immediately strikes everyone with a kind of awe and may even move someone to tears. That is, if you go to Arlington National Cemetery to the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier and you watch the men there marching back and forth, they do not look to one side or the other, they do not chat, they don't whisper, they don't smile. They do what they do with absolute silence and solemnity, okay? Because they are there to protect that tomb. Um, that's quintessentially a masculine kind of thing that they're doing. And um, to the extent that our own liturgies never do something like that. Now, I don't mean they have always to do something like that, but they never do anything like that. Uh, to that extent, they, um, frankly, they simply lose the interest of, of boys and men. And again, the boys and men themselves would be hard put to describe what's going on. They wouldn't say, oh, I can't stand that anymore because it's all feminine. They wouldn't have put it that way. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, it's not as if they would be rejecting anything. It's just that they've never been inspired by it in the first place. Well, we, we hear a lot about representation, female representation, this group or that group's representation. There's very little male representation any longer, even, even in some churches. And that does repel or drive men away naturally because they feel they're encroaching on something that is other and that, frankly, they are not, they and their right. sex are not a part of. I mean, that is part of the, well, I think, just a natural reaction among guys. Yeah, frankly, that they're not even terribly welcome. Um, and mm. if people blanch at this, I ask them, just be patient with me, be kind to, to men and boys and think that in each sex, uh, every, and in humanity in general, every strength is also sometimes a weakness. A, a, a strength in one area suggests maybe a shortcoming too, right? Um, the fact that uh, um, the fact that women are special in some sense, right? They are not the generic human being. They are a special kind of mm -hmm. human being. Um, that's uh, to exalt women in one way, but it's in another way. Uh, it makes it quite impossible in any culture, quite unthinkable, to give boys girls' names. But the reverse is not true, right? Um, a, a name can go from being a boy's name to being a girl's name. The reverse does not happen. Uh, an article of clothing, mm. which has begun to be worn by boys, can then be worn um, with adaptations by girls or with no adaptations. But the converse is not true. To the extent mm. that something is perceived as essentially feminine, to that same extent, feminists themselves would not uh, uh, impose it upon their own sons. No feminist would name her own son Susie. It's not happening, right? Um, but she might very well name her daughter uh, Madison or uh, other names that were male names, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, in, in, so in the liturgy, if 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 you are going to if you are going to stock the life 
of, of the church with what looks like and sounds like Susie, um, Sally, Mary, uh, I don't mean Mary the Blessed Mother, but basically things that say subconsciously and then sometimes consciously, this is feminine. To that same extent, you lose the boys. They, you never get their interests. You lose the men. Mm. And in the next generation, you lose the women too. Yeah. Anthony, in a recent survey by the National Center for Health Statistics, the marriage rate fell in the U.S. in 2020 to a 50-year low, down nearly 17 percent since only 2019. 2020 also right. had the lowest fertility rate, the number of babies born, since the 1930s. What do those statistics say to you vis-a-vis -vis manliness? Well, uh, uh says to me that we are not accomplishing the fundamental work of any society, any culture, right? The fundamental work of any culture is to bring the men and women, boys and girls who become men and women together, right? In uh, strong and stable marriage bonds, family bonds that will then be rich in children. That's the fundamental mm. work. It's both biological and cultural. It's anthropological, mm. right? Before we even yeah. get to theology, it's, it's, it's what every society has to do or the society dies, right? Um, and if we're not doing that... I only have a minute left. Father's Day is next month. What would be your message to fathers this year? And what do you want readers to take away from No Apologies, your book? Uh, I want fathers to get themselves into church. I want fathers and mothers to get their boys and girls married. Um, and I want everybody to read the book, No Apologies, so that they can blast out of the water all the, all the lies that, uh, that they've been told about their own sex and have a proper esteem for it once again. Anthony, thanks for being here. No Apologies, Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men by Anthony Esserlin is available on Tuesday, May 24th, online at bookstores everywhere, as well as EWTN's religious catalog. Anthony, thanks for being here. Thanks, Raymond. And a group of nuns has gathered to record a new CD of music dedicated to the Blessed Sacrament. The sisters have teamed with De Montfort Music, Sophia Music Group, to bring us adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite sisters of the most sacred heart of Los Angeles. A member of their community, Sister Gianna Heinemann, is here to tell us more about it. Sister Gianna, thank you for being here. Uh, we'll get to the new CD in a moment, but uh, tell me about your community, the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles. Um, give me a sense of the community and its apostolates. Well, our community was um, founded from, our mother founders came from Mexico during the religious persecution in the 1920s and 30s, and she came to Los Angeles and uh, wanted to find a safe haven for her sisters. And so we have been here for 95 years. Um, and we are a, a bit of a unique version of Carmel, as you may imagine, we're semi-cloistered, meaning that we, uh, we do have our life of Carmel, our life of prayer, uh, but we have active works also whereas other cloistered Carmelite communities, they don't leave their monastery. Um, but we have the traditional life of prayer, and then we serve in education, mm -hmm. in uh, retreat work, 
and in health care for the elderly. Hmm. Now, Sister Gianna, obviously uh, a, a part of your service is music and the chant, and I know that plays an important role in your liturgical lives. How important is music to the community, and how does music reflect your devotion to the Eucharist? That's a great question. Well, we begin our day, um, our day is ordered, or we call it our orarium, is beginning with music and ending with music. Um, in the morning, our sister uh, who rings the rising bell wakes us. And so the very first thing coming out of our mouths and as we exit out of sleep is song and she's calling us to the chapel. So um, we begin before the Blessed Sacrament and we end before the Blessed Sacrament at night. Um, praying Compline together, mm -hmm. so singing is of the essence um, of our of our life um, in the Mass, in Eucharistic Adoration, and um, the Divine Office. Mm. The new so. CD is called Adoration from Carmel Eucharistic Hymns. Uh, it was recorded in your own St. Joseph's Chapel, and it consists of both traditional and contemporary arrangements. Um, how are these 16 selections chosen, sister, and what's the significance of these pieces of music that made their way onto the CD? Well, we wanted to compile a, a selection of, of music that's really flowing from our prayer, um, what we do every day out of our um, devotion to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And um, especially with our community, we have a focus on devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So mm. what you'll hear on this CD is um, just the ancient tried and true uh, songs of love to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament, like Tantu Mergo, Panis Angelicus, Soul of My Savior. Mm. Um, and then we also, we thought about the people in the National Eucharistic Revival just Hmm. picturing them sitting in the pew before the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. And we wrote songs with them in mind and with the Lord in mind and all the graces he wants to pour hmm. out upon us during this time. So we have some some of the ancient and the well-known and then a hmm. few that are born from our own prayer. I love it. Here's a bit of the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart, Adoration from Carmel. Listen. So beautiful. This is not the sisters' first CD, though. Uh, the community recorded its first album back in 1996. Sister Gianna, what's special about this new CD, and how are listeners reacting? Well, what's special about this new CD is uh, it's not original in sense of creative. It's ordinary to our Carmelite way of life. But what we're allowing you to do is step inside of our chapel and, um, as it were, sit in the pew with us um, or kneel and adore the Lord. So we just the way we recorded this CD is unique to our um, other albums that we've done. We recorded in our chapel and the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament was there. And um, it's just an authentic 
a rendering of, of our way of life. Mm. And I really love that every once in a while you can hear a, a rosary bead jingle <laughs> because we're getting into the music and we're singing and just loving the Lord in praise and together with our voices. Well, I, I hope the audio engineer agrees with you, sister. You know, sometimes they get touchy about the, <laughs> you know, the little tings and the clicks happening in the background. But we'll leave it there. Adoration from Carmel, Eucharistic hymns from the Carmelite Sisters of the Most Sacred Heart of Los Angeles is available now at music outlets everywhere and online. For more information, you can go to sophiamusicgroup.com. Sister Gianna, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. That is all the time we have for now. Be sure to catch us next week. Until then, we'll be scouting the world over for all that is seen and unseen. On behalf of the staff and crew of EWTN News, thanks for watching. I'm Raymond Arroyo. Bye now.